and then we'll get into the teaching together. And I'll be reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews and of the Greeks, excuse me, I'm sorry, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Those brethren being, of course, Paul and Barnabas, right? Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes." But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. And Father, as we look at this passage, we look at Lord, the response to your truth. As we look at Paul and Barnabas' response to these, these men who wanted to sacrifice to them as if they were gods. Lord, teach us. Lord, we know that you and your word say to us that there's nothing new under the sun. 
These same kinds of things are taking place today. Oh, they take different forms and they look different, but ultimately in the hearts of men and women, they're exactly the same. Help us, God, to understand it, to see it, give us discernment. Let your spirit be with us to teach us and lead us into your truth. And Lord, to glorify the name of Jesus. That's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. Last week we finished up the uh, 13th chapter. And uh, one of the things that we want to take note of, we, we want to remember what took place there in Antioch before uh, Barnabas and, and Paul left there and, and headed to Iconium that we see there in the 51st verse. In, the, in verse 50 of chapter 13, in fact, those last three verses, let's just read those verses just to remind us of what, what took place and allow it to serve as an introduction to our passage today. Acts 13, verses 50 to 52 reads, But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, as, as we see the response of the Jews, and we, we, we see this taking place there in Antioch, of course, the uh, Jewish men who did not believe the gospel, the Jewish unbelievers, they're the ones that stirred up the others against the uh, apostles, Barnabas, and Paul, and it's interesting that Luke, in writing this, calls both Barnabas and Paul apostles. Now, you guys will remember, of course, that the, the word apostles just simply means, you know, those who are sent out. An apostle is one who is sent out by God, of course. Now, that has very varied meanings. I mean, there are the, uh, there are the apostles of Christ that we see in the Gospels that are named by him, uh, and that, that's his particular office. But in a very real sense, isn't it true that all of us, in one sense, are apostles? In the sense of the meaning of the word, sent out by him. Isn't it true that he sends us out to minister to people around us? He sends us out with the gospel of Jesus Christ to speak to those who need salvation. He sends us, us out too. So in that sense, it applies to all of us. It truly does. But we see uh, both uh, Barnabas and Saul, uh, Paul uh, called apostles here by Luke as, as he writes. But it is the Jews who are stirring up the trouble. The Jews who are turning the people against those who are bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I, as I said in my prayer, the Lord has told us there's nothing new under the sun. Now this is 2,000 years ago, approximately. 
still happening today, isn't it? Not necessarily that it's the Jews themselves who are doing it. Not that they don't. But the world. The world turns us, attempts to turn us, attempts to turn those who are hearing the gospel by somehow perverting the gospel of Christ. They, they, they turn people away from Jesus as much as they can. And, and again, you know, um, the world just hates Jesus. And as a result, the world hates you and me because we love him, because we identify with him, because we belong to him, because we, we are sighted with him, if you will. And so the spiritual warfare, very intense in our world. And, you know, one of the things I was sharing with the guys yesterday is that you know, we, we have to be very careful that as we are training up younger people around us, whether they're our children, grandchildren, kids in the church, neighbors, uh, nieces or nephews, whomever it may be, that we don't allow them to think that the world is anything but that. You know, one of the things that, that uh, has always intrigued me, and I, I've never read this book, and I've shared this with you before, that I've never read the book, but also the title of the book, one by A.W. Tozer. I, uh, I'm reading some of his works even now. I have not got to this book yet. But there's one book that, that he wrote, and the title of the book is This World, Playground or Battleground. And you know what? The, the, the title speaks volumes, doesn't it? In terms of the reality of what's going on in our world and the pro one of the problems within the church you know, uh, we need to see this world as a battleground. We really do, not a playground. A, a place where spiritual warfare is taking place rather than a place where we can just have fun. Now, we shouldn't go to Disneyland. I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't go to Disneyland. <laughs> I stopped going because it just costs so much money. And, and I'm hearing now that you have to actually set up an appointment to go. You have to call and make sure, make, make, reserva make a reservation. Anyway, but, you know, I think one of the reasons that we like Disneyland is because we know that it's make-believe. We, we know that it's like fairy tale. We, we know that it's not real, and it's a place where we can kind of just get away from what's real and just have some fun, right? I mean, and, and we like to do that, and, and it's not necessarily an unhealthy to do that one, once in a while, but... There are too many believers in Jesus Christ who want you to simply live that way and find all of, 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 of the uh, things that they can that are going to somehow bring pleasure to them, ignoring the reality of the warfare that's in this world. All that to say that, guys, we are at war. And... It all revolves around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, revolving around the person of Jesus Christ. The, the God of this age wants to turn people away from him. He, of course, invites all to come to him. And so we see that battle being waged in, in different areas, di different settings, among different groups of people. But... It's there. That's really what the war is all about. 
But just as we see here in verse 2 of chapter 14 that the Jews did some stirring up, they, they did the same thing back in the 13th chapter as well in Antioch. The gospel has that effect, doesn't it? It brings division. The gospel of Christ brings division. Jesus himself brings division. We see in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, Jesus saying this, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's reality, isn't it? But it's interesting that Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, as the one who is peace, you know, I was speaking about this yesterday, you know, the, the, the theme of the, of, of the conference was peace in a troubled world. And I, I spoke a lot about, you know, bringing different passages out about the reality of Jesus being our peace. And we, don't can, we only can find peace through him. As we seek him, we will experience his peace. Yet he came not to bring peace in the world, but he came to bring division. Isn't that interesting? He wants to give you peace in your heart. He wants to give you peace with God first and foremost. But when you find that peace in him, then we become enemies of the world. Remembering that, as Jesus said, the world hated me. If the world hates you, just know this, that it hated me first, right? And this is the nature of the spiritual warfare that we're involved in. So, Paul and Barnabas come to Iconium. And by the way, one thing that I didn't hit on last week uh, as we closed the service, uh, verse 52, before we get into verse 14, or chapter 14, excuse me, Uh, Verse 52, we see that the disciples, those who came to Christ there in Antioch, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Turn with me over to Galatians. I I don't have this in my notes and it's not going to be placed on on, on the screen, but Galatians chapter 5. Let's just take a quick look as a reminder, at the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. We see Paul writing that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, in self-control. And he writes, against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. Now the word fruit there is singular. There's one fruit, but we see nine things listed there. The first thing there is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Those other things that we see following that are different aspects of of that love that we have from God that that we were able to experience because of that love. 
but the first of the rest of them is joy. Joy. You think that joy ought to be something that marks us as Christians? Love first. Love first. Because Jesus said in John chapter 13, uh, uh, the setting being the upper room discourse, right, right after basically he had washed the apostles' feet. He said, a new commandment I give to you, in verses 34 and 35 of, of, of John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, love one another. And then he says, all will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You see, all will know you belong to Jesus because of your love. And Jesus says specifically our love for one another. Specifically the love that is in the body of Christ for one another. He's not talking about the way we love people outside of the body, but how we, people, how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That's what he's talking about. And when others see that, it can be very, very attractive. Is it any wonder that the enemy tries to bring division within the church? Guys, let's not cooperate with him. Let's not cooperate with him. He will, he will have his way with us if he can. And it's our job to follow the scriptures, follow Jesus, and not be swayed by him. Joy and the Holy Spirit. I think that's something that ought to define every one of us as believers. Filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Filled with joy because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Iconium. We see the, the apostles arrive there in Iconium here in verse 1. And it happened that in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke. So they did what they normally would do. Paul always went to the synagogues first to give the word of God, to give the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. We, we, we saw already how, how he uh, spoke that earlier, that he came to the Jews, gave the word to them. Since, he rejected, since they rejected him, he went to the Gentiles. He was called as, as an apostle to the Gentiles, we know, but always to the synagogue first. And he spoke in such a way that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Now, the Greeks who would, would have heard him would have been those who were proselytes or God-fearers, those who believed that the God of the Jews is the true God and wanted to hear uh, the, the, the word of God that he had brought and worship this same God. Let's remember that this part of the world, you know, they, they had gone away from Jerusalem, away from Judea, away from Israel and in the pagan world. Now, in the pagan world, of course, there were Jews who were there, and there was a synagogue there because of that, but by and large, it was a, a, a population of, of pagans who worshipped their gods. And, and we see in this, in this uh, chapter there, we already read how one of the ways that they worshipped those gods. The Greek gods Zeus and Hermes are mentioned. 
that they worshipped. So this was a pagan culture that they came into, and, and, and our own culture is growing more and more pagan, isn't it? More and more pagan. So, so we can learn some things about the way that, that they minister in these particular cities. But we do see here, though, that they came preaching the gospel. As they were there in Iconium, they so spoke. Now, one of the things I want to point out is that we see here in the very beginning, in the first three verses, we see three different gifts of the Spirit in operation. Are you guys still reading that book, or did you already finish it, or what's going on with you guys that, that we gave to you guys a couple months ago? The book on the Holy Spirit? Still reading it? Okay, good. Some of you, I see a couple of heads going like this, and other, other, others of you just kind of going. <laughs> three, three different gifts in operation. Right there in the first, the, the, the first verse, we see that they so spoke. What did they speak? The truth of God's word. That's the gift of prophecy. Speaking forth the things of God. God using us to speak forth his truth. The gift of prophecy. And they so spoke, and the emphasis there is they spoke with such effectiveness that a great multitude, it wasn't just three or four, it wasn't just eight or ten, a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, believed. What gift would that be? The gift of evangelism. And then we see in the third verse, let's go and read that third verse. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness, here we go, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders, those are miracles, to be done by their hands. And so the gift of miracles as well. So three spiritual gifts in operation as Paul and Barnabas are ministering there in Iconium. But as the gift of prophecy was being used and they so spoke to these, these both Jews and Greeks in this synagogue, a great multitude of both the Jews and the Greeks came to faith. They believed what they had to say. They placed their trust in Jesus. That's what the word believe connotes here for us. And then in verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up, we've talked about this already, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Another word there for, for the word poisoned is embittered. Embittered them. Some of the translations you may have uh, that you're looking at may have that word. They, they poisoned them. They embittered them. Let me ask you something. Have you guys ever been involved in a relationship or saw one in which you have a particular individual who is poisoning the minds of others 
against another individual. Yesterday in the conference, our brother Richard was sharing with us about how, and, and this is a very common thing, this, this kind of a setting, uh, a, a divorced couple with children. That's where he found himself. He, he got married, he was divorced, had young children. She had custody of the children. He was in prison. Those of you who know his story. When he got out, and it, during the entire time that he was there, his ex-wife was basically doing this to his girls. You guys who were with us yesterday, you remember what he, I mean, that's exactly what was going on. She was poisoning their minds against him. And unfortunately, that's a very common thing in our human experience, isn't it? Unfortunately, that is true. In, in, our, in our desire to win people's hearts, we, put, we set people against others. Here we see these unbelieving Jews stirring up the Gentiles. Now it's interesting that while Jews and Greeks believed that it was the Gentiles who were being poisoned by the unbelieving Jews. Why not poison the hearts of the Jews who came to faith? We're not told anything about that. All we can do is just kind of surmise about that. But it was the Gentiles. It was the Gentiles that they, that they stirred up. They poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now, as they did... The, the minds, and another thing that's interesting is that in, in my Bible, you know how you've got these little references in the Bible? I've got a little uh, reference by the word minds in my Bible, and it says literally souls. The word minds is literally souls. Now, they were just being turned against them. It's literally being turned against them. But, notice this, verse 3. Look at this very first word, therefore. What is the word therefore, therefore? It's to link the previous thought with the next. Right? And so, because a great multitude came to faith and because those Gentiles who came to faith were being embittered against Paul and Barnabas, because of that, therefore, for that reason, they stayed there a long time. You know, they didn't say, well, I guess it's time to get out of town. You know, um, Paul didn't turn to Barnabas and said, Well, Barney, it's time to go. They're not accepting this. I wonder if he called them Barney. You know, we have a nickname. I wonder what his nickname was. Anyway, um, no, they stayed there a long time for that reason. Because of verse 2, verse 3 happened. Therefore, 
Therefore, they stayed. That's the reason they stayed, that they stayed. Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16, something interesting. As he's making his closing remarks at the end of this letter in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, uh, verses 8 and 9. He wrote to the Corinthians, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. So he wrote the letter, obviously, from Ephesus. For a great and effective door. This is why he's tarrying. This is why he's staying for a while longer. A great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul chose to stay longer in Ephesus because a great and effective door had opened to him, and he happens to mention that there are, there are many adversaries. And, and this is connected in such a way that it's almost as if because there are so many adversaries, it shows me that a, an effective door, a great and effective door has opened for me. I'm going to stay, stay a while and take advantage of that open door and do battle against these adversaries because souls are at stake. Isn't that what it's about? Souls are at stake, right? Souls are at stake. And so guys, if you're trying to serve the Lord and things seem to be working against you, take heart. Because that simply means that the enemy's trying to stop you. He can use people. He can use people that we love. People who normally are supportive of us can turn against us in a particular way. Many ways that the enemy can, can bring that opposition. It's generally through people, but circumstances as well. But if we find opposition, that's probably a good thing. Because wherever God is attempting to do a work, God, wherever God is doing a work, the enemy is going to attempt to thwart that work of God. Because he hates you. He hates people in general. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, of, of the thief, a reference to Satan. The thief comes to seek and to kill and to destroy, doesn't he? And so, opposition, it was there. Because it was there, because the, the Jewish unbelievers were poisoning, embittering the minds, the souls of of, of the Gentiles who were hearing the gospel, there was work to be done. There was more ministry that had to take place in the lives of these Gentiles. Remember, the, these Gentiles, these, these Greeks, the, the, they're, they're from a, a, a pagan culture. Many of them that, that heard what was going on within the preaching in the synagogue they, 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 they were hearing the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. But, but, but at the same time, there were those outside and still seeing what was going on. I mean, they, they weren't familiar with, with Judaism whatsoever, not familiar with the Old Testament, not familiar with God's truth. And so a lot of work 
had to take place. Something that we see taking place here too is simply because as we see in verse 3 that they stayed there, there's a boldness that we see in their hearts. They didn't run from the problem. They were there boldly speaking because of the problem. Note verse 3. Therefore they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. Guys, this warfare that we're involved in is, is, is not a place for, for, for those of us who have a tendency to tuck our tail between our legs and just run at the first sign of difficulty. Every war needs warriors. That's what we are. We're, we're warriors for Jesus Christ, aren't we? And he's given us implements of, uh, of uh, gear to wear, the, the armor of God that we see at the end of the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. Let's wear it, knowing we're protected by God, and do battle. Take that sword of the Spirit and use it. Use it to bring people to Jesus Christ. But not only was there boldness, but we see God working in support of their work. We, we see there in verse 3 again, who, who was bearing witness, God himself, okay, speaking boldly in the Lord, who, speaking of Jesus, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And we see the writer to the Hebrews speaking about that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. As, as the writer is speaking about the, the, the gospel that had come, uh, uh, and he says, God also bearing witness, in that fourth verse, God also bearing witness, just like here, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And so, that, that, that passage there in Hebrew speaks about the, the need for us to give heed to what we're hearing because God bears witness to it. And this is how God bears witness to it. We see it taking place here in Iconium in Acts chapter 14. And so as these signs and wonders are taking place, the, and Paul and Barnabas are staying a long time. Now we don't know what a long time means. Was it several months? Probably something like several months, I would think. We don't really know. I don't think it was just two or three weeks. It was a long time. And so they were there a long time doing this warfare, doing this battle. There was already division. You know, these unbelieving Jews were stirring up the, the Gentiles, poisoning their hearts and so forth. And the longer time passed, probably what was taking place, the, the, the lines of division were, were probably growing more and more clear. There was this division. Verse 4, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, part with the apostles. That makes sense. That's where the division was. It was over Christ. The division was over the gospel of Christ. But we see that the apostles were on one side of it and the Jews were on the other. These Jewish leaders of the synagogue, the Jewish unbelievers. 
And as it says, with their rulers, excuse me, in verse 5, I'm looking at verse 5 now. But they, they cited on one side and the other. Now verse 5, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So the division grew so sharp that the Jewish leaders, they, they were you know, uh, uh, stirring up the, the, the hearts of the Gentiles, uh, the, the Greeks, and they basically plotted to, to execute Barnabas and Paul. And when they heard of it, they, they planned a violent uprising and then so they could kill those two men. And when Paul and Barnabas heard of it, at that point, they thought, well, it's probably time to leave. So they were able to, to get away and they went to the area of, of Lystra and Derby, and they were preaching the gospel there. Boldness is something that we see characterizing their ministry. If we look at Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, we see division taking place in Jerusalem here at this particular time. We were in Acts chapter 4 uh, a few months ago here in the book of Acts. And as we look at those, those three verses, 29 to 31, let's read them. This is after the, uh, the apostles, uh, John and Peter in particular, were called in to, to give account to the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem because they were preaching in the name of Jesus. Of course, they said you know, to them, you know, I mean, you can determine whatever you guys want to do, but we can't do anything but preach and, and teach the things that we've seen and heard. It's basically what they said to them. Well, here in verse 29. Now, they're praying now after John and Peter come and give the report of what took place in their meeting after they had been beaten by uh, their meeting with the Jewish leaders. They say in this prayer, Now, Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Isn't that cool? The threats to beat them didn't bother them. Well, it didn't dissuade them, that's for sure. Grant that, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then the answer to the prayer we see in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God answers our prayers, guys. When we pray a prayer like that, God, just help me. Help me to be a vessel of yours. Lord, make me aware 
of opportunities that come to me to share your good news with those around me. Make me aware of those appointments that you are arranging for me with people who you already are working in their hearts and, and, and you are causing them to begin to be open to the truth of your word. Help me to be aware of that. Give me discernment. Give me understanding. Give me knowledge. And give me boldness to speak your truth. You think God would answer a prayer like that? I think one of the things that we need to do in this warfare is be ready to do those kinds of things. You know, we have to make our plan for the day. And it's a part of our plan to, to, to uh, uh, speak to the captain of the Lord's armies in that way and ask him to prepare the way for us. He will. He will. If you have a heart to share God's word with people, he will bring people to you so they can hear God's word. If that's what you want. We also see in that passage in Ephesians chapter 6 connected to uh, what Paul had written earlier in the chapter about the armor of God. He is asking for prayer in verse 19. And he's saying, and for me, he's saying, pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And so, boldness. So as we see in verse 7 that Paul and Barnabas go to the cities of Lystra and Derbe, and we see that they were preaching the gospel there. Having been run out of one town and then threatened with stoning in another, they go to another city and they don't change what they're doing. They continue to preach the gospel. Continue to preach the gospel. And so they get to Lystra. They're preaching the gospel. And in Lystra, we see in verse 8, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Paul's trying to make a point there in different ways, saying this guy was a cripple. He never walked in his life. Now look at verse 9. This man heard Paul speaking. That's the first clue. That's the first key. He heard what Paul had to say. What was he doing? Well, verse 7 says he was preaching the gospel. He heard what Paul was saying. And then Paul, observing him intently, he was watching him. He noticed something about him. You know when you're talking to somebody and you know, you know that you've got their attention? You know, they're, they're not sitting there on their phone looking at text messages or looking at their website or looking at their Facebook or, or, or whatever. You know, but you've actually got their attention. You know, like with you guys right now, some of you I do have your attention. I'm just playing with you guys. But he... <laughs> yeah, hi. Um... <laughs> He, he was looking at him intently, and look what he, what he noticed. As he was observing him intently, and he saw that he had faith to be healed, 
And that makes me wonder, what did Paul see that told him that this man had faith to be healed of this crippling disease that he had had since birth? What did he see? I mean, was there anything physical that he could see that would tell him that? Or was it just, or was it just simply another gift of the Spirit that God had given to him? The Spirit of discernment. A gift of knowledge. God let Paul know that this man had the faith to be healed. Now, let's not confuse the issue. There are those within the church today, those in the word faith movement, we can call it the name it and claim it people, blab it and grab it. (laughs) There's a lot of different ways we can say it. But they have placed their faith in faith itself rather than their faith in the God who brings these blessings. And they will say, you've got to believe in faith. And they would tell me, because I've been praying for several years and a couple years now, as you guys are praying for my wife, she's not been healed yet, they would tell us, well, you just don't have enough faith. There's no room in their theology for God to have some kind of different plan than to bring healing. Because if they said that, they would lose a lot of money. But in the process, they destroy people's faith because God simply does not heal everybody. We see that in the New Testament. We see Paul writing about that in 2 Corinthians as he had prayed for his own uh, thorn in the flesh to be removed, and it wasn't removed, but Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. I guess Paul didn't have no faith. Right? Anyway. No, he had placed his faith. He saw that this was a man God had told him, this, this man here is listening, he's receiving my word through your lips. He is at a place where he's ready to be healed. I want to bless this man. He's ready to receive it. And so, we see there in verse 10, he speaks with a loud voice, Stand up! Stand up straight on your feet! Now earlier we saw Peter grab a guy and, he's, and he stood him to his feet, Right? Here Paul just simply tells him, stand up on your feet. And he did so. We see that he he leaped and began to walk. He just jumped to his feet and he began walking. And now in in beginning of verse 11, when these, these pagan idolatrous people saw this take place, well, Verse 11, when, they, when, the, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Uh, they, they, they called Barnabas Zeus. They pa- called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought an oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. They, they were going to bring, bring sacrifices uh, 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 
to give offerings to, to Paul and Barnabas thinking that they were gods in human form. That's a response to God doing a miracle. You can kind of understand that, why they would respond that way, but they were without knowledge of the true and living God, worshiping these pagan deities. Now in verse 14, we see, the, the, we see Barnabas and Paul, when they, when they figured out what was going on, you know, they didn't understand what they were saying, but when they figured out what was going on, they, they responded by tearing their clothes, running in among the people, tearing their clothes as a sign of blasphemy. This is the blasphemous thing that you're doing. We're not gods. And there in verse 15, they say, why are you doing these things? We're also men with the same nature as you. We're just like you guys. We're men just like you. Don't offer sacrifices to us. And we're preaching to you that you should turn from these useless things. Now, what they were saying was that their worship of these gods through offering these sacrifices was a useless thing. That's kind of in your face, isn't it? The word useless things. It could be vanities, vain things. It could be emptiness or empty things. Those are all words that are the same here as useless, and those are words that define what idolatry is. An idol is a useless thing. An idol is a vain thing. An idol is an empty thing. But let's not think that these words don't apply to us because we don't sacrifice animals to our idols. Our idols can be a, a lot of things. As many people are in this room right now, it'd be different idols that we that we that we deal with as a group of people. An idol basically is anything that supplants God from His position as Lord in our lives. Anything. It can be a person. It can be a job. It can be, you know, a, a relationship with a person. It can be some kind of a behavior. It can be some kind of an addiction. It, it, can, it can be uh, seeking pleasure, uh, playing video games, uh, watching football, uh, going shopping for shoes. I just had to throw that in, ladies. Um, <laughs> I mean, whatever it may be. I mean, the, the gamut of our human experience, we can raise them to their level. It can be Loving our family more than we love God. Our family has become an idol. A lot of different things, guys. But we see here Paul saying to them, turn, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. What's he, what's he defining there? Repentance. Repentance. Turn to God from these useless things. Bottom line is this. Whatever it is that is an idol in our life, it cannot take the place of God, although we have made it take the place of God. We've lowered God. We've taken Him off of the throne of our heart and put this there, whatever it is. And that thing cannot save you. 
That thing cannot bring you peace. That, ca- that thing cannot fill your heart with joy. Not true joy. It can make you happy for a few minutes, but not joy. It can't give you joy. Only the Holy Spirit within you can do those things. Only He can do that. And so as we understand that, guys, these people are really no different than us in the sense of who and what we are. It's just that we've heard the gospel for a much longer time. We in this room, we've given our hearts to Christ. We are following Him, and yet we still have to do battle with the idols that, that our enemy tempts us with, the idols that were, were truly idols for us in the past and are threatening us to jump back on that throne if we allow it, if we give it the time. Let's give our time to God's Word, to prayer, to Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, rather than to those useless things, those useless idols that can be in our lives. Amen? That's what we need to do. Turn to God. Amen? Amen to that. And so as we see them speaking this way, they they begin to define God as the one who is the living God. He made the heaven, the earth, the sea, all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations... So he defines him as a creator of all things. Uh, in times past, he allowed nations to walk in their own ways, to worship their own gods in the way that they, they come to worship him. But the, the, the intimation is here that now that Christ has been sent, now that he has taken our sins uh, and, and died on that cross for our sins, and, and as he has, was buried rose from the dead and now is at the right hand of the one and true living God, it's time to change. Things are different now. He's allowed you to do that in the past, not anymore. Because the Messiah has come. The Lamb of God has been sacrificed. Not these animals, the Lamb of God, for your sins. And so, Not only did he allow you to worship in your own way, he also has not left himself without witness by blessing us. God causes the the sun to rise on the just and the unjust alike, right? He brings the rain upon the just and the unjust alike. That's really what he's talking about here. He, He says there in verse 17, He didn't leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And then with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. It's like they they were barely able to do it. They, They were able to do it with great difficulty but they were restrained. In Isaiah 50, or excuse me, 44, verses 15 to 17, the folly of idols. He writes, Then it shall be for a man to burn. He's talking about the wood that he had gone into the forest, cutting down a tree, and brought the wood home. For he will take some of it and worm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. 
His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. He falls to that piece of wood. How foolish is that? How empty is that? How vain and useless is that? And yet that is what they would do. But we do the same thing with our 21st century idols, guys. We ask it to do for us what only God can do. God help us. God help us. And so, we're going to stop right here. We're going to pick up in verse 19 next week. Now, your eyes probably have already gone there and they're going there now. I go, no, we can't stop now. We're, we do have to stop now. But we'll pick up next week with verse 19 when we see the result of Paul and Barnabas speaking this way to these pagan idol worshipers. And Father, help us. We pray, God, that you'd have your way in our hearts. We pray, God, that you would do your work, continue your work in us and through us. And God, help us with our idols. Lord, I, I, I don't want to say that lightly, just in the sense of like idols are just kind of there. They, they're temptations, Lord. Every person in this room knows what their, what their own idols are if they exist right now. Or Lord, if you have taken, if you have successfully taken those idols off of the throne and inserted you there and we are actually worshiping you and you are on that throne, we do know what the potential idols are. We know ourselves. We know our behaviors. We know what we like. We, we know what we're drawn to. God, might we be faithful to you. Might we be faithful to you. In your faithfulness toward us, might we respond in faithfulness to worship you and you alone as the one and true living God. And have your, have your way in our hearts this day as we do worship you. Might we worship you as we leave this church. Might we worship you as we hang around here and fellowship with one another. Might we worship you as we gather around, around lunch this, this, this afternoon or a late breakfast, whatever it may be. Might we worship you through the, th the way that we speak and the way that we deal with, with each other. Lord, might worship be a 24-7 proposition for you. Not just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and another hour and a half on a Wednesday and maybe a men's conference or maybe a ladies' brunch. or No, 24-7. Help us, God, we pray. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our hearts now. We give you those things. Lord, be on the throne of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.